So today, as you can see, we're going to be talking about Jesus in the Old Testament. So what this uh, Jeremy asked me to do was to kind of give like a synopsis um, of what I gave in the uh, Adult Bible Fellowship on Sunday mornings, um, which we have from 9 a.m. to 10.15. David right now, he's going through the parables, which is an awesome, awesome thing. So this is a little plug-in. You guys, if you guys aren't coming to that, please come. It's such an edifying time time of growth, a time of discussion. So my goal here today is to bring that into here. So that means you can interrupt me with questions. That means we can talk and have a discussion and kind of go through this stuff together. So it's not so much a sermon type, it's more of kind of a class type and just like we're gonna be learning together just from um, what the scriptures have to say and uh, we'll kind of go through this, this time together. So. For those of you guys who were in the class, I know this is going to be redundant. And, you know, imagine me. I'm doing the same study again and again and again. But last night, I was still getting chills. I was still, like, being, like, dumbfounded at this, um, at these truths in Scripture. Um, so, you know, the Word of God never goes out and comes back void. So we hold on to that truth, and um, it's exciting stuff. So come along on this journey. <laughs> All right, so um, St. Augustine has this uh, quote that I'm sure we've all heard, and it says, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. So today we're going to be seeing this, is how the Old Testament is concealed, but the New Testament is what reveals the Old Testament. And we're going to see passages that really, Paul really cameras this point about the Old Testament. Um, so when we're studying Jesus in the Old Testament, these are some important points. So first of all, it's really exciting. There's something about it that just kind of stirs our heart that we just like get really excited about. And when I'm saying Jesus in the Old Testament, I'm not talking so much about like the Scarlet Trail. I'm talking typology and I'm talking literally Jesus in the Old Testament. This is what we call, this is in theology, it's called theology of typology. Uh, this is the study of it. So it's, it's something about it just really exciting. It's something that's, you know, that leads to the second point that is, is neglected. It's not preached about, it's not taught about as often as it, I believe it should. Um, and we'll see this, that the scripture gives us permission to look at these things in the Old Testament over and over and over again. Um, and yeah, we'll get into that. The third thing that's really important is that this can be dangerous, looking for Jesus in the Old Testament. And the reason why it can be dangerous is we don't want to look and see Jesus in the lines. Like we, can't, we don't want to say, oh, this verse number and this chapter number, if you take these numbers and you turn these letters, you know, the numbers weren't added until like 500 years ago, you know. So we don't want to see Jesus where he's not and, you know, start manufacturing information and, you know, coming up to that. Um, so usually when I do the, uh, the ABF, I save the application of the study um, until the very end. is like how we can apply this in our lives. But I thought it would be beneficial to put this in the front. And so there's two applications of studying Jesus in the Old Testament. Um, the first one is proving Jesus. We'll see this, that the early apostles, they used the Old Testament over and over and over again to preach the gospel. That was their means of preaching the gospel, is using the Old Testament, as the scripture has said over and over again, they say that. Um, and the second part is that we'll probably focus on today is knowing Jesus. The application of that is knowing him in a deeper way and understanding that. 
And the third point that I have here is it's more than okay to disagree with these views. This is not salvation issues. So this is, this is what a healthy church can do, is that we can disagree about these things and, and discuss and grow and learn. They're not salvation, you know? We, what is salvation is we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, apart from works. That is salvation. That one we can argue and, you know, go to the death on because that's what we stand on. Um, so this is really important. So it's exciting that we can disagree about these things. So I like that idea. Um, so yeah, so this is going to be a lot of information. So hang in there with me. Um, I've heard the illustration said it's like drinking water out of a fire hydrant. So this is six hours of material that I've like studied through or that I've had in our ABF that I'm condensing and I'm going to try to do in a half an hour. We'll see. Uh, only God knows. So let's get started. Actually, let's open up in a word of prayer and, um, and let the Holy Spirit kind of take control. Father, we lift up this time to you. This is your time. This is your time to speak to our hearts, to open our eyes, to, so that we can hear what your scripture has said. You've preserved this word for us to open and to read and to, to be the fruit, the food for our souls, Father. So we just pray that we have open hearts to hear and that um, your scripture really speaks to us today. Pray that your Holy Spirit takes over right now and that um, we might submit unto your will. God, we just, we love you. We pray for those who are in Lake Tower right now. Um, even if anybody's driving back, we just pray that your hand of protection is upon them as they're coming back. And we pray for everybody who's not here with us this morning. We lift these things up in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, I'm not making this stuff up. Jesus even says that he is in the Old Testament. Um, okay, real fast. Sorry, I missed the slide. So, just some key terms. Um, there's the word typology. Typology just means symbols, types, or shadows that represent something else. There's a term called Christophanies, and this is a, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. There's Theophanies, which is a manifestation of God. And just important points when we're reading in the New Testament, whenever they're saying the scripture or the law, that just means the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi. Or when they say Moses, they're meaning the Pentateuch, which are the first five books of the Bible. Another thing to, it's important is whenever Christ is mentioned, like Jesus Christ, that's not an actual, that's not, a, that's not like a person, Jesus Christ. Christ is the title, okay? It's the one who's to come, Christos. It comes from the word Christos in Greek which means the anointed one, the chosen one. And the word Christ is a Greek translation for the Hebrew word Messiah or Messiah. Okay, so Jesus says he's in the Old Testament. Okay, in John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and this is what he says. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Do not think that I will accuse you to my father. The one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope, for if you believe Moses, you would have believed me. For what? For he wrote about me. Jesus is saying Moses wrote about me, Jesus. But if you do not believe these, his writings, how will you believe my words? So Jesus here is saying Moses wrote about himself. Pretty profound. So... Um, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke 
24, 13, chapter, uh, verse 13. This is um, in a really important passage. Um, I love this passage. This one, this one gives me chills for sure. This is um, the morning of, or the day of, the resurrection of, uh, of Jesus. This is, so this is, this is the context. Jesus was crucified three days prior. Now this is Sunday where Jesus rose from the dead. So this is, so Luke 24, verse 13, it says, that very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were walking, uh, they were talking with each other about these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing them. So Jesus, in his resurrected body, came to them, but they didn't know it was him. And he said to them, what is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad, and one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? I love Jesus and his, like, his ways of doing things. And he, said, and he said to them, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was, mighty, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how, the chief, how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it is now the third day and since these things have happened. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us, and they, were, and they went to the tomb early in the morning, and they didn't find his body. And they came back saying that they had visions of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said. Now listen to what Jesus says. This is really important. He says this. He said, O foolish ones and slow to heart, to believe all the prophets have spoken. Why did Jesus say this? Why didn't he say, oh, you foolish ones, why didn't you listen to what I said? Because he told them, right? Destroy this temple and I will raise in three days. No, but he says, all the prophets have spoken. Let's continue. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now listen to this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them all the scripture the things concerning himself. Like, Jesus gave the first Jesus in the Old Testament Bible study. He was the first one. So I think we have now the privilege to kind of read from that. Let's continue and just kind of read halfway through the paragraph. So they drew near to the village which they were going, and he acted as if he was going farther. But they turned to, they, but they urged him strongly to stay saying, stay with us for the day, or for it is now toward evening and the day is far spent. So he went in and stayed with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And I love this part. And they said to each other, did our hearts not burn within us while he talked on the road, while he opened up the scriptures to us? Like, did our hearts not burn within us when he, like, opened up the scriptures to us and revealed the scripture and how it was pointing to Jesus all along? Like, this is really exciting stuff. So 
you know, kind of speculation, this might have been some of the sources in, that we see later in the Old Testament, or in the New Testament, of, you know, the New Testament writings. Um, when Paul talks about um, Jesus and Adam being a type, and how, like, the, the comparison between Jesus and Adam. And, you know, we, we're, we'll kind of get into that as we move along. All right, so, pretty awesome stuff here. Um, so as I mentioned, the early apostles, they used uh, the Old Testament to preach the gospel. Um, and we see this, you know, I could have literally done Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 4, Acts 5, Acts 6, so like all the, all the chapters. But we see like just specific verses if you wanted to take a picture or uh, write these down. Acts 2.36, Acts 3.18, Acts 4.10, Acts 5.42, Acts 8.5, uh, 17.11, and 8.28. Um, that the early apostles constantly were using the Old Testament to preach the gospel. Um, and another point is that the Apostles' Creed, so the Apostles' Creed was something that is dated months after the resurrection of Jesus. This was a creed that was passed along the early church, and this is kind of what they stood, stood by. It's almost like a mantra, like this is, this is what we stand by. They had it in writing. And Paul writes this, and he says, For I delivered to you as a first in, of first importance what I also received. And this is, this is the creed. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. And he appeared to Cephas, then to twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom who are still alive though some have fallen asleep. Then he, appeared to, then he appeared to James, then to all the disciples. So this was the creed. So this is important, the part that says, like, in accordance with the scripture. So we're going to read this verse together as a congregation later, but this is a really important verse. Paul writes this, and he says that Jesus is the only way to understand the Old Testament. And this is crucial. I, I couldn't say it better than what Paul says here. In 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 18, he says, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. An important point here is that, you know, I, whenever I read, like, when Moses went into the tabernacle to meet God, he went in the tent to meet God, he would come out and he had a veil over his face. I always thought because the glory of God, you know, would remain on his face and so the people couldn't see it or handle it. But Paul is saying, no, the veil was there so they wouldn't see it fading away. Like that's what the veil was for because this was meant to be fading away. Like the old covenant, like we see that um, in Hebrews talks about that clearly. Uh, let's continue. But their minds were hardened for to this day when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, and literally to this day, 2019, whenever Moses is read, a veil remains over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, that is Jesus, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit, and, when the, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of God, we are being transformed into the same image of from one degree to another, of glory to another. For this comes from the Spirit, or from the Lord who is Spirit. So what is, what is, what is Paul saying here? It's, so today, 
the Jewish congregation, they, when they read the Old Testament, they still have a veil. They don't fully understand. We'll see this. The Old Testament, you're just left with a lot of question marks. But it's only through Jesus those question marks are turned into exclamation points and give an answer. So Jesus is the only key to unlocking the Old Testament. Okay, now that we set the groundwork, let's uh, get into typology, and then we're going to get into some, some fun things, some things that just kind of really excite me. So, just kind of an important point, what is this picture of? What is this? Does anybody know what this is? And if you were in the Sunday school, please don't answer. Please say. Shark, okay. Anybody else? All right, we'll go shark. It's a duck, okay. So the point that I'm trying to make here is that it's really important when we're looking at typology, that typology is this, like when, when the Bible uses a type of Christ, we don't take that as Christ, okay? We can't use the shadow to determine the reality. Jesus is the reality, and these shadows are just depictions of Jesus. So we can't learn new theology looking at typology. We can't say, oh, Jesus, you know, for example, if um, Paul, he compares Jesus and Adam, we can't say, well, Adam took the fruit, and Jesus, he must have done this, and, you know, kind of go down this trail. We can't learn new theology. But what we can do is we can deepen our own theology, if your theology is accurate, but we can deepen truth, okay, through studying Jesus in the Old Testament. So shadows cannot represent realities. That's really important when we're, we're studying typology. All right. Okay. Jesus as the serpent. I'm sure a lot of you guys are being like, huh? Is there going to be heresy? Have you guys ever noticed this? That Jesus says that he is like a serpent or like the serpent? He does. Right before the, one of the famous verses, John three sixteen, he says, No one has ever ascended into heaven except the one who descends from it, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What? Jesus is comparing himself to the serpent that was lifted up in the wilderness? Right? We, right when we hear serpent, we think of, you know, the Garden of Eden, Satan, all this stuff. Let's look at what Jesus is taking this from. Taking this from Numbers 21, it says this. So this is just a really short passage in the middle of Numbers of this kind of just one-off that happens. And this is what happens. From Mount Hor they sought out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the, be and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke out, spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up um, out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. What is this worthless food that they're complaining about? Does anybody know? Manna from God. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the, many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpent from us. So Moses prayed for the people, 
And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This is the gospel message in here. I don't know if you guys caught it, but let's see it. So here's a comparison of Numbers 21 and Jesus. The people were doomed because they complained and grumbled against God. Right? We were doomed in our sins. Ephesians 2 says, And we and you who were dead in your trespass and sin in which you once walked, following the curse of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that is the spirit that works in the sons of disobedience, among all who lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is us. The bronze serpent offered grace. Jesus offers grace. In John 1.14 it says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this is the best one. So in the story, God says anybody that looks to the serpent will live. That's all they needed to do. What does John 6.40 says? For this is the will of my Father, that anyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So now we're starting to see these things, this typology kind of come into place. So what are the takeaways? We are not saved by works. What did the Israelites have to do? What did they have to do to be saved? Just look, that's it. This, is, this, this gives us a new image of, you know, what we are in Christ or, or how our relationships work in Christ. It's, it's by grace alone. Nothing that we do. All they had to do is just look. It's remarkably simple. Just look. All right. So there's a lot more typology, but I'm running out of time, so we're going to skip it. Um, hopefully that motivates you guys to come to the ABF class, but... Um, all right, so we're going to get into um, the angel of the Lord. Who is the angel of the Lord? This, I love this study. So, um, but here are some important points when we're covering the angel of the Lord. And like I said, feel free to interrupt me if you guys have questions or anything, like comments. Please, like this is ABF, but on a larger scale. So, all right, so important points about angel of the Lord is angel. The word angel just means messenger. That's important that we take that. Okay? When we're reading the passages of the angel of the Lord, really pay attention to first person and third person speech. How the angel speaks. How he speaks in first person and third person. What's core, core, core and crucial to, un to reading this and like having a sound mind is having your Trinitarian doctrine in place because Mormonism really takes these passages and runs rampant with it. So Trinity is key. Three persons, one being. So this is kind of a little diagram if you can see it. So the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. But the Father is God. The Holy Spirit is God. And Jesus is God. 
That's as far as I'm going to explain it. And we're gonna, when we read these passages, we're going to see that the waters are really muddy. They're really vague. They're kind of like, what's going on here? Like, this is so confusing. Why isn't it clear? What, like, why is this so vague? And I believe that the vagueness in Scripture, in these Scriptures, is more than likely on purpose. They are on purpose. And that's to kind of get us asking the question. So let's get into this. We'll kind of run through this. So in Genesis 16, we see the first appearance of the angel of the Lord, okay? And this is with Hagar. This was the mistress of Abraham, or Abram at that time. So the angel of the Lord found her by a spring. So this is what we're going to do real fast. What we're going to do is we're going to just go through these passages and ask a bunch of questions. And then my last, like, minute, hopefully we can answer all these questions, all right? All right, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of the water, spring of water in the wilderness, and the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. And the angel of the Lord also said to her, what does he say? I don't know if you can see it, but I marked it in red. I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for a multitude. Same thing that God said to Abraham, right? The plot thickens as we move along. Okay. I know it's a lot of scripture, but I love the Bible, so it's okay. Uh, Genesis 22, we're not going to read 1 through 18. This is kind of broken up. So this is Abraham. Um, this is the passage where Abraham takes Isaac to be sacrificed. God asked him. He's, so First thing right off, the bat, right off the bat, we see after these things, who tested Abraham? God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah for, and offer him as a burnt offering on the mountain of which I tell you. This right here is a huge typology of Jesus Christ. Take your son, your only son, the one whom you love, and sacrifice him. This is, and if you read it, like, on the third day, he looked up. The son was carrying the bundle of woods. Like, all this, like, intricate stuff of just, like, pointing to Jesus. It's screaming out of the page. Let's continue in verse 10. So Abraham reached out his hand and took out the knife to slaughter his son. But who stopped him? The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything for him, for I know that you fear God. So now he's talking third person, for I know you fear God. Seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, um, from me. So what? I know that you fear God, but I see that you have not withheld him from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord provide. And to this day, it, and it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And listen to this. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, what? By myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord. Because you have done this and not withheld your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring. Who's talking, though? The angel of the Lord. 
I will surely multiply your offsprings as a star in the heaven, as a sand on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies, and your offspring shall be the nation of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. This is the angel of the Lord speaking, remember that. Okay, the plot thickens even more. Okay, so now we have Jacob. As we all know, Jacob, he wrestled with the angel, right? Or wrestled with somebody. Okay, so the point here is that the angel of the Lord and angel of God are synonymous. They can kind of be intermixed, and we see that in Scripture. So in Genesis 31, 11 through 13, it says, Then the angel of the Lord said to me in a dream, Jacob, and he said, Here am I, or here I am. He said, Lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, or mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing. And then what is, who's talking though? The angel of God, right? What does he say in verse 13? I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and you made a vow to me. Now arise and go to this land and, le- and return to the land of your kindred. Like, why, why is the angel of the Lord talking with such authority? Keep going. Okay, so later on in Jacob's life in Genesis 48, we see that he blesses Ephraim, Manasseh, and Joseph. So this part, he blesses Joseph, and he says this. He says, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, and then what does he say? The angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. Like, what? Obviously, he's not talking about two separate gods here. But it just, it's really interesting. These little, like, snippets of things that, like, what? Like, you say the God, you know, and then the God, and then all of a sudden you switch and you say the angel. And what I find really cool is, what does he say about the angel? The one who has redeemed me. Who's our redeemer, right? Controversial stuff a little bit, huh? All right, we're not going to read all of this, but just to kind of go through it, I've highlighted the things. Have you ever noticed when reading the burning bush, who appears in the flame? It's the angel of the Lord. But if you read the whole passage, it's God speaking. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham and Isaac. The Lord said, but Moses said to God, Go and gather the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, has appeared to me. Like, but who appeared to him in the burning bush? The angel of the Lord. Just some fun things. All right. Question time. Who Who brought the Israelites out of Egypt? Was it the Lord Yahweh, the Father, was it the angel of the Lord, or was it Jesus? What's that? All three of them. But did you know that there's scripture supporting all three? Leviticus 11.45, for I am the Lord. Whenever, oh, important point, whenever you see capital L, capital O, R, D, that is Yahweh. That's the unspoken name of God. I wish they had a translation that just said, you know, the H, or Y-H-W-H, the 
make it more easier to read. But anyways, for I am Yahweh, who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. We're not going to read this whole thing just because we're running out of time. Judges 2, 1 through 4. Now the angel of the Lord went from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and brought you back into the land that I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. What? The angel of the Lord is saying this? Jesus in Jude 5, or Jude 1, 5, it says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. Did you ever read Jesus in Exodus? Moses wrote about him, right? We see. All right. A lot of reading here, but we're good, okay? Let's get through this. All right, this is Manoah. Manoah, does anybody know who Manoah is? The father of Samson, okay? So this is the angel of the Lord, and this is really cool. This gives me chills every time I read it. That's why it's really important that we go through this. Okay, Judges 13, it says this, And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren, and you have not... uh, you have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And, um, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance like was, was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I love that part. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb until the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come to us again and teach us what are we to do with this child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah. And the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field, but Manoah, her husband, wasn't with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went went after his wife, and he came to the man and said, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, and we'll see here that he didn't know that this was the angel of the Lord. He'll say it in a second. Please let us detain you and prepare a a young goat for you. Detain just means invite, like come over. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah didn't know that he was the angel of the Lord. So this individual is talking to Manoah is making a clear like if if you're going to do some offer it to the Lord right we live in a context where there's many other gods he's directing him to Yahweh God and Manoah said to the angel listen to this what is your name so that when your words come true we may honor you and the angel of the Lord said to him listen to this it's so peculiar it's so weird and the angel of the Lord said to him why do you ask my name seeing it is wonderful. Is that how you would answer somebody? 
In Isaiah 9, it says, and his name shall be called, in the King James, it actually says, and his name shall be called Wonderful, comma, Counselor, comma, Mighty God, comma, Everlasting Father. His name shall be called Wonderful. Let's continue. So Manoah took the young goat and the grain offering, and he offered it on the rock to the Lord, the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up towards heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. And Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. So they fell in fear. Why? It says here, The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. I'm like getting chills right now, and I keep reading this passage over and over again. This was common Jewish knowledge. You see God, you die. But here he's having an interaction with the angel of the Lord. The whole time. We see this in Scripture. He's having an interaction with the angel of the Lord. But what does he say? He says, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. All right. It gets even crazier. <laughs> all right how are we doing on time okay all right so let's let's get through this uh part a little faster are you guys with me you guys good i know i know it's a lot i know it's a lot but it's stuff that gets me really excited okay so let's let's actually start with this passage does anybody know we were not going to read the whole thing do you guys remember when isaiah saw the throne room of god So we'll just kind of read just this little small section. Um, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a, upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood a seraphim. Each had six wings. Two he covered his face, and two he covered his feet, and two he flew. And one of them called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Then the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke, and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. The same thing, like I'm going to die, like I'm in this presence. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among the people of the unclean lips. Then the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal uh, that he'd taken from the tongs of the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sins are atoned for. Okay, so, so this is, this is, Isaiah is in the throne room of God, right? Okay. Whenever we read this passage, we think of Yahweh, we think of the Father, okay? But what does John say? Okay. When Jesus, this is in John 12, 36, it says, When Jesus had said these things, he departed, and he hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still didn't believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is a quote from Isaiah 53, 1, which is the suffering servant passage, okay? By his wounds we are healed. He was crushed for our iniquities. Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes, and harden their hearts, lest they shall see with their eyes, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I will heal him. 
Okay, before we get into 41, let's see here. Right there in verse 10 at the bottom, that's that quote. So John is quoting from Isaiah 6 here, this appearance of Isaiah in the throne room of God. But what does John say in verse 41? Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who's he talking about? Jesus. Who is John saying he saw in the, Isaiah saw in the throne room? He's saying he saw Jesus. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. What? This is John saying this, that he, that Isaiah saw Jesus in his glory. Okay. I don't know, it's, it's, it's incredible. All right. I'm just going to kind of give a, like a synopsis of Genesis. Um, if you guys can, while I'm doing this, uh, turn to Genesis 19 for me. Um, and then we're going to kind of wrap this up. So in Genesis 18, we have this story of um, three individuals uh, appear to Abraham. And these three individuals appear to Abraham and it seems like just kind of kind of quickly going through it that Abraham is only addressing one of them okay and we see this intermixture of the Lord said and this conversation that Abraham is having with the Lord but there's three men standing in front of him he's having food, he gave them food the, and the Lord is promising that, you know, that Sarah is going to have a child this time next year. And it's, it keeps going back and forth. And then after this dialogue happens, this is where we see that the three men, they go up and Abraham takes them and points them towards Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is where Abraham kind of barters with God and says, like, will you destroy the city if there are righteous in it? And he goes from 50 to 30 to 15 to 10. And, you know, this is this is the story. And so what we see after these three men in verse, um, in chapter 19, verse 1, it says two of the angels came to um, Sodom in the, in the evening. So these three men kind of divide up. So you have one person staying back. Abraham went back to his place. One of one stays back. Two of the angels go into Sodom and Gomorrah, and we, we know what happens there, right? And people want to lay with them, and like all this weird stuff happens in Sodom and Gomorrah whatever. But I want to point to this. Look at verse 24 in verse in chapter 19. So remember, the capital L-O-R-D is Yahweh. So I'm going to say Yahweh instead of the Lord. Let me see if I have it up here, actually. I don't. Okay. So 1924, then Yahweh rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from Yahweh out of heaven. How many Yahwehs do we have here? We have two. Like, how do we reconcile this? It's through Trinitarian doctrine that we have to stick to. That God is three persons in one being. That this was, I believe, a Christophany. This was an pre-incarnate appearance of Christ here. See, early Jewish belief before, I think it was the 20th or 2nd century after Christ, 
they believed that there was two powers in heaven. But they, after the second century, that was considered heresy. Because they, they, how do you reconcile these verses? And we're, we're going to come to the answer in a second. So pretty cool stuff. And this, this thought was carried over in Amos of, this, of, of Genesis 19.24. In Amos 4.11, it says, I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Like, what? Such a, like, what, why is it worded this way? I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, declares the Lord. So we're left with a bunch of questions, like I said. Okay. Oh, there's the verse. Sorry. Oh, was that it? Okay. It shouldn't be, but... Okay, it is. Uh-oh. All right, that's okay. All my verses are in John. Um, so, who answers these questions? In John chapter 1, it says this in verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Talking about Jesus. This is the Word became flesh section. In John 14, 9, just listen to these verses as they're as, as what we just went through. John 14, 9 says this. Jesus said to him, or no, in, um, starting in 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen the Father has seen me. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? Like, doesn't this give it new meaning? Deepens our theology, deepens our understanding of Christ. John 8, 58. Oh, we're kind of going backwards, okay. Um, John 8, 58 says this. And Jesus said to him, said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And then we, as we read in the beginning, um, in John 5, when he talks to the Pharisees, that Moses wrote about him. And the road to Emmaus, that he revealed all the scripture pointing back to him. So what does this do to us? What does this kind of compel us to, to, to move forward with? Is that this is God's love story to us, is that he's interacting with us from day one, that he's been there. And this is Jesus. That's how deep he loves us. This shows me love at a whole new level, at a deeper level. And what it also does is it magnifies the cross. This is the same Jesus that died on the cross. If it was Jesus that Isaiah saw in that throne room, he was also on that cross. So this is, isn't new information. It's just information that might not have been revealed or like brought to light yet or in our lives, but this is in scripture and this is 
we can't do away with. We have to reconcile it. We have to deal with them. But I pray that this information really stirs our hearts. Like, like, like the two disciples said, didn't our hearts burn within us when he was opening up the scripture to us? Like, I pray that your hearts are burning within you, that this is Jesus. This is our Savior, the one who loved us, the one who was on that cross and bled for us. In his glorious state, even before he was born in Bethlehem, and now we're going to see him again one day in his glorious state again. So let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time of just opening up your scriptures and seeing truth, absolute truth. Father, I just pray that we were honoring to you and, and glorifying to you and, and seeing how amazing and awesome you are. For you are awesome. Just like Manoah's wife said. God, we just, we thank you for this time. We pray just the blessings over the, uh, the worship service and communion service that we're about to have. Um, we just pray that we honor you in every single way and thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for just everything you can do and you've done and you continue to do in our lives. You are amazing. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.